Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative, a Boyer-inspired national consortium of leading research universities dedicated to strengthening and, if you will, reinventing undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandeno, Executive Director, and Liz Mock, Assistant Director, and we come to you from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, the home of the Reinvention Collaborative. Today's guest is Deborah A. Santiago, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Excellencia in Education. Deborah co-founded Excellencia in Education to inform policy and practice, compel action, and collaborate with those committed and ready to act to increase student success. Before Excellencia, she was vice president for data and policy analysis at the LA County Alliance for Student Achievement, a policy analyst at the Library of Congress's Congressional Research Service on Legislative Issues in Higher Education, and informed programmatic and budgetary efforts in the Office of Post-Secondary Education at the U.S. Department of Education. She also served as the Deputy Director of the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for Hispanic Americans, working with federal agencies and communities across the nation to improve awareness and education opportunities for Latinos and to the Aspira Association. Deborah has been cited in numerous publications for her work, including The Economist, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. Hello, Deborah. Hello there. We're so delighted. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for your time. We'll just jump in with some questions. Here's the first big one. The Pew Research Center noted earlier this year that the U.S. Hispanic population reached nearly 60 million in 2018, and that while the rate of growth is slowing, Latinx population growth accounts for about half, 52% of all U.S. population growth between 2008 and 2018. So we imagine that most of our listeners are well aware of these macro-level demographic trends and can easily appreciate their general implications for U.S. higher education. But as someone as deeply engaged and knowledgeable as you about the nexus between Latino communities and the nation's colleges and universities, how would you introduce the basic mission of excellency in education? You know, how do you frame the proverbial big picture? Sure. Well, Steve, we started excellency in education 15 years ago because we were in conversations in Washington, D.C., talking about the success of students and what we needed to do to improve student success. And we weren't talking about who the students were. And increasingly, as they were post-traditional, not looking like the students of today, and I will say even today, there are conversations in D.C. and public policy where we're the only people of color in the room. Hmm. So the mission of Excellence in Education is really founded to try and accelerate Latino student success in higher education. And for us, that is not to the exclusion of anyone else, but it's rather than having the conversations where Latinos are the foot end or footnote or the aside, that we actually start with this population and look at what happened there to see if we can serve others differently. So the mission of excellence in education really is to accelerate Latino students' success in higher education, making sure that everybody increases because we don't want any, you know, the, the closure of gaps to go at the expense of any other group. But we know that if we're going to close gaps in attainment, while everybody is increasing, Latinos must accelerate if we're going to close gaps. That's what feeds our effort and why we try to accelerate and do the work we do. You know, it's interesting you note that in even in 2019, when you're in high-level policy conversations, that you're the only people of color in the room. I mean, how can that be? 
That's a great question. <laughs> I have to admit, I, I ask myself that quite a bit as well. I will say that there is an increased awareness and attention to students of color and groups who haven't historically been as well served or haven't participated as much in the past. And that, that isn't limited, as you know, to just people of color, talking about people of color. So I do see more awareness and attention. I think part of that is, is frankly, the absolute necessity as the number of high school graduates, you know, tapers off plateaus and, and will decrease as it will for the next 15 years or so. Latinos are an, uh, the growth population. And so we're seeing increased awareness and attention. I think we need more people of color looking at public policy, not saying that others can't address it, but I, I think one of the reasons we're still the only folks in the room at times is because a lot of wonderful people doing really important work are on campuses or on the ground or working in communities, and they're not in Washington, D.C., where you kind of have to translate yeah. good practice to go forward. So, Deborah, I'm old enough to recall Secretary Henry Cisneros's call for Hispanic solidarity, particularly its translation and a political voice and coordinated action in pursuit of a more just society for all. Now, how does Excellencia view its social mission today when I think it's fair to say we face even greater challenges in the public sphere than did leaders like Secretary Cisneros and all too often, nothing short of truly dire circumstances on the ground for students from Latinx families and communities. Well, it is true that the Latino, Hispanic, it's a, it's a political construct, which really represents people from more than 20 countries of origin that mm -hmm. have in common a history and maybe a language even today that's not necessarily the case. You have Latinos who don't even speak Spanish. So for us, the social mission is there's an imperative here to make sure the profile of Latinos in this country is much more asset-based, not the deficit-based perspective that I think too often leads conversations and then creates limited action for change. So by that, I mean, you know, the profile of Latinos is often seen as one where high school dropouts, English language learners predominantly immigrants, undocumented immigrants. And while many of us are more likely to be that than others, the majority of us are not. And the ability to understand this complex body, this representation of, of people whose origins might have varied, but who have in common an experience in the United States, in this country, is what really helps us define our social missions today. And that's to make sure that while we make sure we serve all, we are definitely paying attention to the fast growth and potential of this population. And then also pushing ourselves to think about higher education differently and what we do in society differently, because there's an opportunity here to bring in communities that have to, haven't heretofore been served as well and rethinking what we've done in such a way that we can serve everyone better, including those populations. And that's how we frame our social mission is, is to add value in discourse about what it takes to serve people today and going forward and not just focus on the past. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. So it kind of connects with the first question because people are aware that th there's a demographic transition going on. but And then that kind of leads to a discourse that's very self-interested. Well, 
yeah, for our colleges and universities, we need to do X and Y so that we benefit, uh, leaving out uh, any kind of deeper understanding of the students who we're talking about and their diversity and their needs, and including their assets that they bring rather than you know issues uh, in a deficit model. And then there's you know another step that you're suggesting, which is a rethinking of what we do in general for everyone as a result of our appreciating those differences that are uh, part of a U.S. society and changing human experience worldwide. So my follow-up question, which is a hard one, and I forgive me for it, is, well, how do we do that? You know, like what, what steps are Excellencia taking to try to foster those kinds of understandings, both in, you know, among higher ed folks, as well as the policy circles that, that uh, you work in in Washington? Right. You know, for my, in my experience, data are the language of decision makers and making sure that we have a clear and accurate profile of the strengths and opportunities of this population and as part of the population overall is really important. I think the other is we've got to be, we've got to frame the issue, just as you and I were discussing here, Steve, in a manner that this is not a crisis that if we don't do something, the country is not is going to fail. This is an opportunity to make sure that we are investing and supporting and all of those who are in this great nation to make sure. And I don't mean that to be pedantic or esoteric, right? This is really an opportunity to say the kinds of things we know work, generally work for all students, including Latinos, but are we intentionally including them in a way that they are benefiting from the societal opportunities we offer, the investments, the, the economic engines and, and the mobility that are possible in our country. And if they're not being intentionally included, are there things that we can be doing to make sure that they are? So that it's not just, you know, build it and they will come, but build it, make sure that they are included and make sure that we are all finding ways to benefit from what's out there. And I think historically, groups historically not as engaged don't necessarily see that they're included in those opportunities. So that to me is is really important as we look to what's possible. We've done a lot of work saying, you know, what works for Latino students, what works for others. We have a we have a whole list of those kinds of things. This is not rocket science for educators and and those and and the universities you all are working with. I think there's a pretty solid sense that we know what works for our students and what makes a difference. But are we constantly going back and checking to make sure? And are we making sure that our students who might have historically been underrepresented are included in taking advantage and benefiting from the services provided. I think that's our opportunity. And when we talk to institutional leaders and others, we talk about, you know, is there intentionality in including these groups? Are we paying attention if there's disparate benefit or challenges in what we're doing? And are we willing to consider how we might address them differently to make sure that we're meeting our overall goals as well as those for our individuals? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was wondering, you know, how can we be intentional about including new voices at the leadership level? Again, hearkening back to what you're observing in the policy debates in Washington, you said, well, you think a lot of the actions out in the communities, which I'm sure is true, but how can it how can we foster in an intentional way new voices in leadership discussions within higher education, within colleges and universities and within the uh, organizations in which they participate, like APLU, AAU, and those kind of things. You know, how, how can we foster the leadership, the inclusion of leadership there as well? 
Yeah, I think to include leadership, we have to, I think we have to make ourselves a little bit uncomfortable. I think we've got to go out and look at who hasn't been at the table, who hasn't had the microphone, where are there are opportunities for us to create space for them to be included. I think there's a lot of, of leadership potential. And I think maybe we fall into a point where we wait for people to come to us or for, for people to like to apply to our leadership programs and efforts. And if they haven't, well, they must not value or maybe not are mm-hmm. interested. And we keep pushing those to say, look, don't just go to the same 15 institutions, wonderful as they are, but take that next step. Where's an institution you might not have gone to where there might be students that are overrepresented that you're interested in? Where are leaders that you might not necessarily see? And can we push ourselves to say, you know, the the conventional pathways, the conventional approach is not necessarily the most representative. And if anyone is going to change that path or create a wider sense, I think we all have to feel a certain amount of responsibility that we are the ones, you know, because this is happening on our watch. How do we make sure that whether it's one or two people or that we change a conventional approach to make sure that we open the door so that the breadth, the rigor, the, the opportunity of those who haven't heretofore been in those positions see that as a possibility and are given the opportunity to lead and to add their voice. And, and that, that's sometimes uncomfortable. We're so used to our conventional, traditional ways of doing things to say, why don't we go to something other than a flagship institution, as wonderful as they are, and say, have we thought about the feeder schools that they're coming from, or the fact that our students are going in very untraditional pathways. You know, they're swirling, they're stopping out. And given that reality, do we know people who have experienced that, have done that, that can reflect on that and inform our practice? And do we need to think about representative nature of those efforts and strategies in a way that I think will bring in more people of color, but also those that have had different experiences? So I do think we have, if we're in a leadership position, I think we have a responsibility to to give back and not just to those who look and act like us or who went through the traditional pathway. Deborah, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what path led you to your position in higher ed leadership? Sure. So I was a first generation college goer until my junior year, and then I wasn't. And by that, I mean, I am a military brat. And I am the second of four. My father is in the Air Force, and it took him 20 years to get his bachelor's degree. I think he could have gotten almost three bachelor's degrees because every single <laughs> he would get a couple of credits here or there, and it was building it up. And it took him about 20 years to get his degree. Wow. So in my junior year, he actually earned his bachelor's degree. So I was a first gen till I wasn't. <laughs> That's a great but story. But I, I will say this. Yeah, my parents... I always told us that we were going to go to college. My family's from Puerto Rico, and my, both my parents grew up on the island, and then my dad a little bit back and forth in New York. But they always told us that we'd go to college, and that was their dream and vision for the four of us. They didn't know how we were going to do it, but they instilled in us a young age that we were going to do it, and we'd figure it out. And they were incredibly supportive, although they did not know this system and this approach. And in my junior year in high school, I got... I think to this day, the greatest gift I've ever gotten, and that is my parents, they let me go. They were moving to Spain. My dad was getting another assignment, and they were having to move to Spain. It was my junior year in high school, 
And I was worried. I said, I don't know how I'm going to figure out going to college from Spain in the military base there. And my mother said, you need to stay. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, but, you know, to this day, it still chokes me up because the faith and trust that they put in me, that I would figure it out, and the responsibility I felt in representing my family, that I would figure it out to not fail, was really impactful to me. And so it was hard to separate from my family, We're very close, as you can imagine, a military family. But I lived with a third cousin. I stayed wow. in the States, and I figured it out. And that was a very long-winded way of saying, I think that experience of figuring out how to apply, how do I pay for college, what do I need to do, what are the steps, that has still that has informed my practice and my efforts today. And I think while I studied economics and then was doing work in healthcare and housing, that what stayed with me was the opportunity to give back. I feel as a, I'm a person of privilege. I have a college education. Not many Latinos, adults even today have that, you know, less than 30%. And so too much is given, much is expected. And I thought I can add a voice. I'm very data-driven. I worked in the Department of Education. I know financial aid. I know institutions of higher ed. I know policy inside out. Can I bring this Latino lens in a way to add to the discourse and to get people to think a little bit differently or to expand their approach? So I did all this work and you know, I came to a point where I couldn't find a way to feed an agenda in a more traditional organization. And I believe if it if things don't exist that you believe need to happen, then you need to create it. And that was what inspired me to go create Excellence in Education 15 years ago. Wonderful. So what advice would you give higher ed leaders who are on the one hand wanting to well serve Latinx college students from all backgrounds? but on the other are not and often recognize that they are not well-versed in how best to achieve, if you will, excellencia in education. How can educators take responsibility for and concrete steps toward best preparing themselves for the Latino students of today and tomorrow? Well, you know, in, and in public policy and in, in where we are today, you look at the things like the Higher Education Act, there, was a, there is a program called Strengthening Hispanic Serving Institutions, HSIs is the, the acronym that's often used. We use so many acronyms in DC. The value of this, this is a, a definition, identifying institutions based on their percentage enrollment of Hispanics. And I I was a young whippersnapper in the Department of Education in 94 when that was, uh, <laughs> first got some, <laughs> got a few, got some funding. And, and the reason I raised it is, is to your question, Liz, and is um, what can leaders and others do? I was in the Department of Education. We didn't know what to do to try to reach out to institutions to see who, were, who was enrolling Hispanics. And that started a journey for me that, that 20 plus years in is working directly with institutions who are committed to being places where Latinos thrive. They might not be thriving yet, or they might be coming in, might be an emerging HSI, a construct we created. But they, there is an interest, there's an attention, and there's a willingness to make sure that they're doing well. And I think, as I said earlier, for me, we want to work with the coalitionally willing. So our leaders committed to being places where their students thrive, all students, including Latinos. Do you know what it takes for them to thrive? And are you willing to take that step back and not just bring your personal experience, but listen and learn from the students today? And they're very post-traditional pathways to see how they can be served. 
And, and the value to me of this ATSI, Hispanic Serving Institution Construct, is really the serving part. Because I think if we took a step back, our wonderful, rigorous institutions that are, are much more selective in nature, where you might be able to select out issues of equity, right? You can't get away with that all the time. And if you're committed to being places where you see representation and students thriving, irrespective of their background, then looking at examining your academic affairs, your student support services, your practices, looking at the kinds of things we've seen are working at other institutions, seeing what's authentic and works for your campus, calling out the students who are not doing as well or that you intend to reach out to, and your willingness to engage in conversations with others who might be in the same situation, not doing as well or looking to improve, those are all key. You know, again, we work with the Coalition of the Willing. Um, if I have to convince you that this population matters and this matters, I could spend my entire time doing that and not really focusing <laughs> on the action and what it takes. So I think if you're willing to call out as a leader that this is an area where you would like to grow and improve and you can learn, share and learn what you're doing with others, I think that is core to this community of common cause to work with others. And again, I, you know, I think maybe that's simplistic, but I find if we can frame an opportunity for others to, to work and engage in, we'll find a lot more allies than we think. And calling it out that way is important. There are folks not comfortable talking about race and ethnicity. I encounter that almost on a daily basis. And they want to talk about low-income first-gen students, which is also very important. Or they want to talk about, you know, the plethora of subgroups that we are paying attention to. I think that's absolutely important and viable. Are we making sure that we are doing well and right by students has to be our core measure. And that might be measured a little bit differently at some institutions versus others. But I think that commitment to cause means we have to be questioning and making sure we're doing better every day. And those institutional leaders are the ones that I'm interested in working with. Yeah, I don't think any of this is simplistic at all, Deborah. This is wisdom in my book, what you're saying, and you're providing us a very focused way of thinking about what are truly complex issues, but we need that kind of clarity of purpose and focus, and I certainly appreciate it. Uh, I know our listeners will as well. We have one last question, which is, what keeps you up at night? And that, by that, we mean to acknowledge there are some real real challenges that we all face, and they're quite significant. But conversely, and with your asset-based perspective in mind as well, what are you seeing that might inspire hope in, in our listeners? Yeah. So, you know, what, well, I'll, I'll start with the latter, because I do think that's really what drives more than anything else, the, the, what inspires hope. Uh, I just, I see so many opportunities day in and day out for action for, uh, to add value, to, to make a difference, to make a contribution. I mean, in some ways that keeps me up at night because I'm also trying to think <laughs> through how, how can we leverage, how can we add value? How can we make sure that our commitment and, and effort are well, are well served and, and that others have the great opportunities that we had? That, that keeps me up at night, but I, and maybe that's in the positive, maybe you meant what inspires hope. I, I tell you, I don't sit in D.C., every day. I mean, it, it's great to get out of the beltway, as we call it. So I think to do what I do, you have to focus on, on the opportunities presented before you, because I think people 
might throw money at crisis, but they invest in opportunity. The students well, so I think sometimes the onus is on us to make sure that we are reaching out. So just like I was mentioning earlier, you want institutions to to sometimes be uncomfortable and go out and, and look for populations they haven't necessarily served in the past and opportunities, whether it's geography or race or ethnicity or gender or whatever the issues are, but but to push yourself to, to look at populations and serve them in ways you haven't. I think I feel the same responsibility as a nonprofit to to go out and reach out to institutions that are serving others or could be serving others better and aren't necessarily doing so. But you got to meet people part of the way. And I think that's what we're trying to do, which is why my schedule is so hectic. You know, what you were just saying is very important, which is that we were talking about you're very busy, but you're busy because you're an agent of change. And if you weren't, it'd be easier. You, you know, it's easier for any of us who are just trying to reproduce what already exists. It's much more difficult to serve as a catalyst for change and then not just catalyze it, but get people really to we have a long-term commitment to it. And that's right. yeah, that's. And it's not easy, you know, and, and, you know, uh, sometimes it makes people very uncomfortable. Uh, there are times when I'm in communities and in, in, in environments where I'm not completely comfortable, but I think that's where you really get, that tension can be very constructive because then you are going to have to check your own assumptions and see what opportunities arise. And maybe you'll think about things differently than you had. And to me, that's what I benefited from in my my academic experience. And the ability to share that with others means I can't just wait for people to come in and say, hey, we want to serve Hispanics. What do we do? I think we have to go out and talk to people. And it won't be the absolute priority of everyone. And that's got to be OK as well. But how do we find ways to help those who are, who are committed in finding ways to do it? That's, that gives me a sense of hope. It is maybe a little bit of what keeps me up at night because I do think there is such a focus on, on the status quo and, you know, rallying the wagons around and keeping where we are. And I think the beauty and the challenge of higher ed and what we've chosen to do is to, to take that chance. And sometimes it doesn't work out and that's going to be okay. So I think that keeps me up at night because again, are we doing well and right by students and others who might not have had the opportunities I was fortunate enough to have? And then that's also a source of hope because when you see positive experience and people make no difference in matters. You know, what I kind of hear you saying, part of it anyway, is we, we've sort of, Liz and I have invited you to say something about our current political climate, and you've not. And it's almost that person who was a junior in high school who had to, you know, be very self-reliant and tackle a big mission for herself and for her family. You kind of have this attitude of, hey, it doesn't matter what's in our way, we're going to have to take responsibility and work hard, make no excuses, you know, acknowledge the challenges, but not allow them to stand in the way. Is is that fair to capture your feeling about what you and Excellencia are, are doing? I do think that we are, and I manifest in having created Excellencia, that if it doesn't exist, create it. Yeah. And, but don't let up on that either. And I will say, it's not that, you know, whether institutions have historically served us well or not as a broad policy, I think the opportunity is to make them aware and to give them an opportunity to be able to add value and contribute because there is such strength and opportunity in those communities as well. 
and my hope is that in talking their language and engaging with them and working with the coalition of the willing, there's enough that we will be that tipping point that, you know, not paying attention to who the students are you're serving is, is to your own detriment. And the opportunity you have is to sometimes challenge yourself to diversify and pay attention. I think we're trying to model the behavior we'd love for others to do as well. And that doesn't mean that we don't think about these things politically. We're not completely, we're not dependent on government to do this on our behalf. We are being proactive and it would be great for people to meet us, institutions to meet us part of the way. I think that's where we show our engagement and commitment and hope that the institutions who are ready to do so will do the same. Hear, hear. So on behalf of our members and listeners, Steve and I would like to thank Deborah Santiago, Chief Executive Officer of Excellencia in Education, for chatting with us today. Thanks so much, Deborah. Thank you. Well, for having me. And thanks to you for listening to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative. Reinventing You is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Reinvention Collaborative, check us out at reinventioncollaborative, all one word, dot org. RC members can listen to an extended version of this interview at the members section of our site.